Hi again, folks, and welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Property Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakajima again. Great to have you back with us today. And、um, before we get right into this episode, which is going to be a bit、uh, long, you should be forewarned. Just a quick heads up on an arrangement that we've reached with OFX. So, OFX is a foreign exchange trader. They're one of those people who help you move funds overseas、um, from whichever account you've got in whichever country, if you've got another account in another country, or alternatively to make payments to any third party、uh, within that country, even if you don't actually have a bank account there. So, as long as one of the sides in the transaction is an account under your name, You can use their services. The rates are much, much better than the banks. So, usually the banks will only provide a daily rate, whereas the rates actually change every 10 minutes or so. So, the bank sets a rate that is 5% um, above or under, depending on the direction in which they make the conversion, just to cover themselves for any rate fluctuations. Plus, they charge a huge margin and fees. So, it can come up to much more than 5% if you book an international transfer. With your bank. So it's always a good idea to sign up with a Forex provider if you're going to be transferring funds overseas. Definitely in case of、uh, bigger transfers, let's say over $1,000 or so, but you can do that from as little as $250. And the、uh, arrangement that we've got with OFX is that any clients referred by us, regardless of whether their transactions have anything to do with us as a company, any clients referred by us. Uh, will enjoy fee free transfers. So, not only will you get the、um, much improved rates in comparison with the bank, you'll also be、uh, fee free on every transaction under your account as long as your account is, is flagged as having been referred by us. So, we'll put the、uh, sign in、uh, the sign up、uh, link in this episode's show notes.、Uh, it's absolutely free of charge to sign up. You just need to provide a few documents to prove your identity, and off you go. Okay, so without further ado, we're going to dive right into it.、Um, this episode is actually a recording of a business call that we've had with a potential client, or a client now, he was a potential client at the time of the recording. And this is a really extended sort of QA session. It's almost an hour long, and it covers all aspects of what this particular client was interested in. So we're talking about things like,、um, How properties are priced, which locations are better, what to do with a certain budget,、uh, a bit about the、uh, monthly mansion, which is the、uh, rent by the month arrangement versus long term lease, and also versus real short term leases, Airbnb types, which is called Minpaku in Japan. We cover the advantages, the disadvantages, the operational sides, fees involved、uh, at every stage of the、uh, management, and so forth. So, really, This episode is really packed full of really yummy information. Enjoy, and I'll see you on the other side. The main reasons why I've sort of found the Japanese、uh, real estate market really uh, uh, interesting is for three things that I've noticed is that the,、uh, uh, for a lot of the、uh, prices for houses,、uh, I've noticed that they're low,、uh, lower priced in Japan. Com- on average, I would say maybe compared to here in、uh, Canada. And,、uh, Another thing I've noticed is the occupancy rate, is,、uh, in, uh, especially in some parts like Tokyo,、uh, have been、uh, really good, as, as well as the rental income. So, those are three things that I've noticed uh, which uh, has really drawn me towards the Japanese real estate market. So,、uh, and, and mainly, and that's why、uh, I was inquiring with you a lot about the、uh, Minpaku setup,、yep. as, you, as we had talked about a lot over the email. So, when I looked at、uh, some of the potential, 
So that's why I was mostly looking at there. But it sounds like it can be very, very complicated. And I sort of, I guess I wanted to make sure like uh, we know everything because it sounds like there's a lot of there's a lot of things to know in order to get to that, in order to be able to do something like that. Well, they've they've made it that way recently. It was a lot easier until uh, June last year, and then they've changed it um, for a lot of reasons. Some of it is because the hotel lobby was pushing them to, uh, you know, to cut the competition out, and a part of it because neighbors were complaining or um, building management companies were complaining. But I'll, I'll just before we go there, I'll just just a few caveats on what you said just before. So. Um, Prices in Tokyo and central Osaka specifically are not that low anymore. So they have gone uh, up. I think Tokyo is now almost at its um, pre-bubble level. So like back in the 90, early 1990s, we had the bubble burst here and property prices have been going down since then. Um, since uh, I think the middle of last year, again, Tokyo prices are almost at that level again. And I see. Yeah, so we're getting. You're seeing. We're seeing another bubble now. I wouldn't call it a bubble just yet because the rest of the country still has a very long way to go, and I don't think um, Tokyo and Osaka will go much further upwards because of that psychological barrier and because yields are very depressed there now. Um, oh. But specifically, central Tokyo and central Osaka are not that cheap anymore. Um, other places in the country uh, still are, and including some big cities, but not central Tokyo and Osaka. That's the only uh, caveat. As with occupancy as well, it really depends on the types of property you're looking at. So if we're talking about long-term leases, we'll get into short-term in a second, but if we're talking about long-term leases, um, central city occupancies are quite high on um, newish, uh, newish, largish apartments. If you're looking at older... Because you were looking online on some pretty old houses from from memory, so yeah, yeah. yeah. So those guess, yeah. those is really a touch and go. It depends on depends on where they are and how well they're renovated and uh, how much you're asking for rent. So it, I mean, it's not it just not it's not all rosy. Just to to give you a rough idea. So with yeah, short, that I, yeah, yeah. So with, with short term leasing. Um, Minpaku, which is the short, the real short-term holiday-type stay uh, where you charge by the day or by the week, um, that's been heavily regulated now. The general uh, nationwide regulation says that you can't rent this place out for more than half the year in this way. So you can use the rest, the rest of the year in other ways, but short-term stays only up to half the year. Um, and then each particular ordinance and, and city hall has their own regulations about which areas and which types of properties and how they need to be set up. Um, you can get around a lot of the, uh, the headaches if you set up a company and license yourself as a hotel operator or an inn operator. In, in itself is not too, too much of a difficult and expensive process, but then the property has to, set up, has to be set up in a certain way that will um, that will allow you to get that license to operate an inn or a hotel at that address. So it, n- none of it is insurmountable, and pe- people are doing this, and it's definitely doable. But it's it takes a bit more capital and a bit more planning, and it takes choosing the right kind of property to make it work. And the other option is uh, monthly rentals. So as long as you rent for a minimum period of one month and you've got a lease, a standard lease in place, then you don't need to comply with any special regulations. 
if you own an apartment in a residential building, the building management company and the owner's corporation might complain or try to make it longer leases just to avoid people moving in and out too much. But legally, there's not much that they can do about it. They can just cause some uh, headaches for the property manager, but that's about it. Yeah, and I was looking at some of the uh, uh, links you had provided, uh, which showed uh, some of the uh, current earlier on the market on rent, available for rent for monthly rentals. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so that's the thing I was wondering about. So um, I guess if we do, if there is uh, more uh, availability for uh, doing monthly rentals for pro- uh, 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 for properties, uh, is it uh, how much? Uh, different would it be in terms of the uh, uh, in the rental income you would uh, that potential rental rental income you can get from a monthly rental as opposed to let's say long-term rental or as opposed to daily rental what what is it like with in terms of the difference and, and I guess also the expenses well it really depends on the uh, location if it's in a good location um, even in seasonal areas pe- Places that are dependent on, say, you know, by the beach for summer tourism or snowy areas for winter tourism, even those kinds of places tend to, if they're well located, meaning within a reasonable walking distance to a nearby station, usually generate, I'd say, about net net pre-tax about double the long-term lease potential. So, um, if we look at Tokyo, for example, usually your standard apartment will yield about. Four or five percent, if you're lucky, for standard leases. So if you lease it out by the month and it's in a good location, you'll probably make at least double that. So we're talking about, um, say, nine or ten percent if you rent it out by the month, and that's including all of the expenses. So the management company charges more, and you obviously have to uh, pay for um, uh, internet and uh, electricity and water. But then the guest also pays for pays you back for that. And the management company only charges you when the place is rented. So all things included, you can probably double your income if the property is well located. Okay. And uh, the management and utility fee, is that covered by the tenant? The tenant, Or is that uh, usually... Because I think uh, I, when you... Uh, when a tenant books a uh, uh, a rental unit, uh, there's uh, there's a management and a utility fee. Yes, that's that right. Even? That's right. So the guests okay. pay for cleaning. They pay for uh, water and electricity. A fixed fee, but it's a fixed fee that definitely covers you. Okay. Um, and that includes internet as well. So that's all covered. The only thing, and the management company only charges you when the place is uh, is uh, occupied. So they only get paid, uh, they charge usually 25 to 30% depending on the company. But they only take that from the money that comes in from the guest as well. Uh, so the only thing you'll be up for if the property is vacant is the building fees. If you're owning an apartment in a co-owned block, so you've got your monthly, um, I think you call them HOA in Canada, right? Yes. Yeah. So you've got your monthly uh, management fee for the building and the reserve fund contribution. So those two components still have to be paid even if the unit is vacant. But that's that's the case with any apartment. Okay. And what about uh, insurance? How is that? Uh, is there uh, insurance cost as well for any sort of damages or uh, structural uh, maintenance? So structural uh, maintenance, that, that depends on whether you're owning. Are you talking about a house or an apartment in a, in a co-owned building? I guess for a house, would make more sense to have an uh, uh, outside insurance, another insurance. 
Yeah. So if you're owning a if you're owning a unit uh, in a co-owned building, meaning there's a, a owners co corporation and there's a building management company, so the structural and communal expenses for the building go out of the reserve fund pool. So the the money that you pay every month, uh, the reserve fund contributions are supposed to cover all of that. And in some cases, or as the building gets old, they're going to raise the monthly fees uh, to, to compensate for big renovations and stuff like that. So over time, you do tend to pay a little bit more. If it's a house, you're, or if you own the entire building, then you're in, you're in charge of everything. It's all your responsibility, in which case uh, the insurance costs a little bit more. But insurance is very cheap in Japan in any case. For the apartments, we're talking about... Um, uh, for tiny studio apartments, we're talking about something like uh, 5,000 yen, so about 50 bucks for five years. Uh, for oh, okay. Yeah, yeah ridiculously cheap for the interior. Yeah. Uh, as, the, as the apartment gets bigger, the insurance costs a bit more, but it's still very, very small amounts. If you need to cover the structure as well, it's a little bit more, but still um, very reasonable. Uh, while we're talking, I'll, I'll just have a quick look at, um, at a house that one of our customers uh, owned, and I'll tell you how much that works out to be. But go ahead, keep talking. Okay. Yeah, also I was wondering, what about uh, for houses especially, uh, is there like uh, insurance for earthquakes or other natural disasters? Is, uh, do, is it, uh, are those uh, insurances available or is there, are those expensive? Uh, no, all, all insurance policies uh, include coverage for natural disasters, uh, but up to a point. So I think from memory, if it's a total loss case, you get 50% uh, of the value. Oh, I see. Okay. And if it's smaller damages, it's somewhere between 25 to 50%, depending on how, how much damage uh, was caused to the... So it's really a case of... Um, so the compensation would be coming from uh, three sources. It'd be coming from the... If it's a unit in a cone building, so obviously if the building, uh, if the building is uh, demolished or destroyed by an earthquake, the reserve fund pool is then distributed between the uh, owners. Um, I see. Minus the uh, the expense that it takes to the, to to clear the rubble and all that, and okay. your insurance policy will cover you for up to fifty percent of the value of the uh, apartment itself, and then uh, if it's a man-made disaster, say like uh, the nuclear spillage they had at Fukushima, then there will be government compensation uh, to some level, but that usually takes a good few years to to get. So it's a case of. It's really a case, whether it'll be uh, completely paid for or not, is a case of how long you are getting income from it before that happened. I see, okay. And this is true for both houses and co-owned buildings, yes. is that right? Yes, so up to 50% in case of total loss, that part is guaranteed, and the rest of it depends on the situation. I see, okay. And uh, what is there a risk for any collateral? Uh, just uh, I know like there's no, uh, the only really any fees are the building management fees in case of vacancies. But uh, sometimes like in uh, here in Canada, like uh, usually when bank lends you a mortgage, uh, gives you a mortgage, usually there's collateral on the house in case sometimes if those uh, payments are not made, uh, eventually uh, they have the right to uh, see, uh, take the uh, seize of the property. So uh, those kind of collapse. Yeah, if you don't pay your property tax, the government can at some stage, I mean, it's never happened to anyone that we worked with, but I think legally they are entitled to uh, to seize the property if you don't pay taxes for a few years. Um, I see. Okay. Taxes are pretty low here as well, though. I think they work out to be somewhere between half a percent to one and a half percent of the uh, purchase price per year. 
So on the studio units, for example, you're looking at something like uh, between two to four hundred dollars a year. Um, and the bigger, oh, the more expensive the property, the more it is. Um, aside oh, from that, no. So building, ma- if you don't pay your building fees, building management uh, might cut the water and the electricity to the unit. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, but they can actually seize the property now. Okay, I see. Yeah, yeah. I think it's similar to uh, here in Canada as well. It's mostly just uh, really it's the property tax you have collateral on, and in case of a house loan through a mortgage, and I'm assuming that's the same case for. Uh, Mortgages, house loans in Japan as well. Yes, there are uh, there are foreclosures in Japan, not as man, as much as in other countries. They will try to avoid that as as long as they can, but they do exist. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm just looking yeah. now at just to give you an example of uh, old house in Sapporo City, for example. So this is uh, something that our customer has. That's 125 square meter uh, cubic meter uh, house on 192 square meter land. Uh, five bedrooms plus living, dining, and kitchen built in 1973, so fairly old. Oh, And okay. that one, insurance on that one costs about $30 a month. Oh, okay, that's quite good. Yeah, it's, it's not really expensive. Yeah. And I, I'll give you one yeah. more little example of a customer that has a building, so a, a multifamily, like a six-unit block. And that's so that sorry that uh, five bedroom you mentioned. Uh, so yeah. is that uh, that's a rental property or is that a residential? Uh, uh, he's he's that, leasing that, it to a family. Yeah. Oh, to one to one family, right? Is one it, family. Is it split yeah. yeah, it's one a one big house for. Uh, I think it's a single mom with two or three kids. Okay. Is the tenant, and she's been very good. She's been with him for years, and um, he just gave her a bonus. He clears the snow off the roof and around the uh, house in the winter, and she's very happy with that. So she's probably going to stay forever, I think. Um, let me just give you another little example. Just give me a sec. So this one is also fairly recent, towards the end of last year. This is a six-unit block um, here in Fukuoka City. Mm-hmm. And that one is so similar, 120 uh, square meters on 125 uh, plot of land, uh, six units uh, of six studio units with a loft in the kitchen, and he's paying seventy dollars, roughly seventy dollars U.S. dollars a month uh, for insurance, including the structure. I see. Okay. Yeah. So it's insurance in general. I mean, especially compared to the property value, uh, it's actually quite, uh, quite uh, more affordable than uh, how it is uh, uh, in here in Canada. Yes, but I'm guessing coverage would be a bit different. You probably get uh, the, yeah. You probably get the hundred percent back if anything happens, right? Yeah, in in most cases, yeah. I mean, uh, there are some other things like uh, uh, for uh, in terms of leakage or in terms that you need to pay more in order to cover those type of things. Yeah. But generally, yeah, uh, the general, the basic coverage, yeah, they would uh, pay you. I think almost almost a hundred percent. Yeah. Well, I mean, some of the policies are expendable to 100%. We never had anyone ask for that because the price does go up significantly if you go for that. Um, I see, yeah. From our experience, 
I mean, I, sh I shouldn't say that this is going to be always the case because this is Japan and we do get earthquakes here. But from our experience in about just about 200 properties under management now, we've only ever had a customer out of pocket about 500 bucks for a bent window frame or something. Yeah. But that's, yeah, that's just it's... statistically it's, it's bound to happen sooner or later. So I, I shouldn't actually get you hopeful with that. Yeah. And the other thing that, uh, since you mentioned that, is that uh, it's, I think we mentioned like uh, the depre depreciation of property and in terms of how uh, quickly, or I guess we were talking about how quickly uh, the properties in Japan tend to depreciate after about 25 or 30 years. So uh, is that uh, the case for all properties or does it depend on the type of structure? Depends on the structure. So the... Let's separate depreciation for tax purposes and practical depreciation, meaning the building is no longer usable. So with yeah. the uh, wooden and metal frame structures, which is most of the uh, older houses and the smaller unit blocks, that's uh, 20, uh, 25 or 27 years from memory for tax purposes. Mm -hmm. um, and you will, need to, you will need to renovate and repair them on a regular basis. With the houses... Um, Parts of the house, as the years go by, parts of the house usually get completely rebuilt. Um, I see. And with the smaller unit blocks, um, I would say practically you can probably keep them going for, say, 40 or 50 years. After that, Always. it's probably going to be uh, a better, uh, a more cost-efficient to tear it down and build a smaller new one. With the reinforced concrete building, so for example, if you own a unit in a, in a larger building that's co-owned, uh, let's say, 50 or 80 or 100 units, uh, those places, for tax purposes, have a lifespan of 47 years. Um, practically, they are maintained far longer than that. Um, the only uh, the oldest building that we've got I think is 1972 I think I mentioned that in an email and that's been very well renovated because it's a very central location and it's a very big property so for a developer to tear it down and compensate I think that one has about 200 units in the in the complex so for a developer to tear it down and then compensate 200 unit owners is going to be a fortune um, plus the cost of so demolishing it something. Rebuilt yet? So it's been there since 1972. Yes, and it's it's in very good shape. They're, they're going to keep renovating it till kingdom come. Okay. So practically, uh, sorry, for, uh, theoretically for tax purposes, it's already depreciated completely. Um, practically, I don't see it going anywhere in the next 20 years at least. Okay. Yeah, because this was one of the things when I was doing my own search at uh, in terms of trying to find a property there. That was one of the things that I was starting to look at. I guess the one of the ones that I had met, uh, the, the ones that I was looking at was about maybe twenty two years old. Yep. And uh, uh, and that was one of the things that came into my mind that uh, maybe uh, the price largely might uh, just be fluctuating depending on the the year they were built and. Um, it could be that maybe there might be some structural uh, renovation that might be required and maybe that's why the uh, property uh, we see some of the properties in the market are much lower priced especially when you look at the area uh, in, even in busy areas like in, uh, within uh, in Tokyo itself it depends on also on what the property is used for here there's um, it, it's a bit counterintuitive to other countries here um, investment properties, meaning properties that the owner can afford to buy but would never want to live in. So let's say the older, smaller units. 
Um, investment properties are priced almost entirely on the rental income that they can fetch. So if um, the economy doesn't do well and tenants uh, aren't paying as much rent, or let's say if new developments came up in the area which pushes down rent uh, for the older developments, um, then the price of the property will drop as well because it's obviously not going to be a property that somebody's going to buy to live in, right? Because somebody who can afford yeah. to pay for a property here would usually buy something a lot more comfortable than these. But for investment purposes, they're cash cows, so that's what people like to invest in. And on the other hand, properties that are definitely owner-occupied, uh, meaning uh, properties that are not going to be generating a lot, of, uh, a lot of money for rental income because they're bigger or they're fancier, they're new, um, they're in relatively well-maintained uh, buildings, uh, these properties can be priced depending on whatever the market does, like in other countries. So if an area is popular, people want to live there, they want to buy properties there, so the property is going gonna, is gonna to go up in price. And that's always going to be regardless of the structure. So the structure depreciates fairly quickly in Japan for tax purposes. Um, yeah. But if the economy does well and the value of the land goes up, that's usually going to surpass whatever the properties lost. So that's what's been happening in Tokyo, Osaka, Fukuoka in the last uh, six, seven years. Oh, I see. Okay. That's interesting to know. So if you get like, uh, so if you uh, have a property in central area, like in, uh, in Tokyo, uh, even if the property is uh, depreciated or let's say it's, it's quite old, it was the just the value of the land uh, alone would be uh, uh, would still be beneficial, uh, even if you even with the cost involved in let's say doing renovations and rebuilding the entire structure. In the, at this point in time, yes, um, knowing that Japan's just. You know, come out of twenty-five odd years of deflation. I wouldn't. I wouldn't bank on that to be a long-term thing. I mean, it really depends on what Japan. I mean, the population here is dec declining. Um, one yeah. of the fastest places, I think, second fastest in the world. Definitely the fastest of the uh, of the uh, larger developed nations. So the f uh, population is in fast decline. The economy has been doing well for the last six, seven years, um, but because the workforce is, is shrinking, has been uh, increasing. Tourism has, in general, been increasing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Tourism has definitely been increasing, and it's probably going to continue to do that. Um, yeah. But the the country's GDP generally, and it, it's heavy rely, reliant on exports. Um, when the workforce is shrinking, even the inflation that they have managed to achieve in the last six, seven years, which I think is about a one and a half percent per year at best, whether that's going to be a long term uh, trend or not is anyone's guess. So. Plus, you know, they say that a big earthquake is due to hit Tokyo in the next uh, 10 or 15 or 20 years. And that when that happens, I'm guessing property prices will definitely go down again. Um, yeah. So I, I wouldn't count on Japan as a capital growth market. I mean, I wouldn't structure your investments based only on that. Make sure that the cash flow works as well. I see. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I, I, again, I don't want to present a picture that's too rosy because that's going to come back to bite both you and me on the bum. Yeah, right yeah. Yeah, and I, that's this is exactly why uh, I'm actually uh, want to, like, uh, that's why I wanted to get in touch with you to try and find out, you know, the caveats and those, uh, these kind of things are actually important information when uh, making my decision. So, yeah. And don't get me wrong, yeah, we've so got some customers with properties in uh, Tokyo, Yokohama, Kawasaki, so around Tokyo as well, um, as well as some uh, smaller bedroom communities that are up to, say, 45 minutes or one hour by train, which are also very popular for rental income. 
And we do have a couple of customers with properties in uh, Osaka and Kobe. Uh, so around those areas, we do. But the vast majority of them usually target places that can provide a little bit more cash flow while still having some potential growth, but not as the main criteria. I see. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, even for me, for me, the main thing I uh, was interested also in terms of instead of looking for the long term growth, I was seeing um, focusing more on the cash flow opportunities uh, in uh, that are available in uh, Japan. Yep. No, if you're going the monthly mansion route, if you're going to be renting out by the month, definitely your cash flow will be higher wherever you're going to end up buying. So that's not, you're not going to be at a case of break even or, or a negative gearing territory at all. But um, you could get higher cash flow in other places, right? Like a last um, monthly mansion type property that we facilitated for a customer is um, in Itoshima. So that's a beach community. Um, should have been pretty vacant during the winter and the autumn, but for some reason it's doing well. And he's making, I think, now about, on average, 13 uh, net before tax. Mm-hmm. 13%. Um, long-term lease on that property would probably get him about half of that. And that's a seasonal one. So you can definitely boost your uh, income with monthly mansion. You can also start with a standard long-term lease. And you know if you're not happy with the returns, next time that tenant moves out, then switch to monthly mansion or vice versa. If it looks like it's too much of a hassle or it's not popular enough to, uh, to, you know, to justify the hassle, you can go back to a long-term lease. And do you have clients who are uh, able to generate, uh, uh, with good properties, are able to generate enough income to uh, sustain, let's say, uh, uh, sustain their lifestyle uh, just through the rental income? Uh, We do, but those are usually people that have invested in quite a few properties. So uh, somebody who's got let's say a few small buildings, let's say up to a total of 20 to 30 doors in total, um, can probably live off that quite comfortably. I mean, it depends on your lifestyle, obviously. And Canada is uh, a more expensive place to live than Japan. But it does exist, but it's not going to be on the base of... uh, I wouldn't say it's going to be on the base of one property. um, But you mentioned a budget of about uh, 200,000 US, right? Yes, that's right, yeah. Yeah, I would say you probably need a bit more than that to live just on that. Yeah. Um, But over the course of, say, if you recycle that money and you invest in the similar sort of budget every, say, five or six years, then maybe after 15 years or so. But you've also got your, um, hopefully you've also got your equity and uh, cash flow in Canada as well, right? Yeah, my main uh, uh, consideration is definitely including uh, the uh, the the portfolio I have here in Canada. Uh, I'm still in the midst of paying uh, both properties off. I'm actually uh, have paid off, or I will be paying off uh, one of my properties. So the uh, the other property will uh, uh, I still have to pay off, but uh, eventually uh, my uh, consideration is definitely taking. The con- uh, taking both of those properties into consideration and also if I can find a good cash flowing property in, in Japan and uh, that's the main thing I was uh, actually looking at and comparing the uh, cash flow I can get from let's say if I buy a third property here and uh, I think maybe if there's a better pro- uh, opportunity uh, for uh, finding a cash flowing investment property in Japan 
but I think it's uh, it's worth just uh, trying to look in the Japanese market instead of the market year. Well, the cash flow in Japan will definitely be higher than Canada. Um, I don't know, you know, if, if we're lucky, capital growth might be uh, good down the track as well. But even if not, the cash flow will definitely be higher here. And um, I'm not sure, are, are Canadian tenants like uh, U.S. tenants? Like if it's a low-income bracket, are they troublesome or are they relatively hands-off, like hassle-free tenants? Uh, yeah, there can be. It's not uh, that different. Uh, but it depends on uh, if you have a good property management, they will do their credit checks. And uh, usually finding good tenants so far has not been a problem for me. Uh, my property management here has been able to do a good job of doing credit checks and uh, finding uh, tenants that I've never had any trouble uh, getting um, the rent uh, uh, from uh, the uh, long-term tenants. Most of my tenants have been also uh, family-oriented um, uh, who uh, are renting long-term. Yep. So if we do this, would be my if we do go with this, uh, we go with a monthly rental. This would be my first experience uh, having uh, different types of tenants who are more focused on uh, short-term, maybe monthly rentals. So well, they're not uh, a problem I, rent-wise because they pay everything in advance, right? That's not an issue at all. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, but they, no, I, my, the point I was trying to make is that the Japanese tenants are probably similar to that uh, experience that you've had in Canada from that respect. So the main reasons people usually come to invest here is for the higher cash flow, for the more affordable properties. Again, central Tokyo and Osaka aside, the properties are more affordable here. Um, and for hassle-free tenants and management, because I mean, here there's no danger of anyone... Um, screwing you. I mean, some people are late to pay the rent and, you know, worst case, they don't pay for a few months. You send them a letter and out they go. You never have to forcibly evict anyone or anything like that. Yeah. that's Yeah. And uh, also speaking of the affordable properties, so uh, I, there were there are sometimes uh, in some rare cases you'll, you'll see online where in even central locations like in Tokyo, you'll uh, find uh, properties within uh, uh, that are actually quite uh, cheaper than uh, uh, what you would expect. And sometimes it's hard to tell what's, uh, what's, what's the factor that's uh, making these uh, cheaper, why are they on, they on the market for so long? Uh, what is the main criteria to look for in these type of properties? Because, uh, for example, though I showed you one, I think maybe it was in within pretty quite central in Tokyo, and it was I think within the budget that we were looking at in uh, uh, twenty million. Yeah. And uh, I guess uh, maybe it might be the it was uh, quite old. I don't know. I think uh, maybe if we're looking at like nineteen ninety five, nineteen ninety seven. I'm not sure if that's a factor. But, uh, um, it depends on the condition of the house. 95 to 97 usually wouldn't be a, too too old for a house. So there might be something specifically wrong with that one. In other cases, it might be that the um, building regulations have changed and that land parcel just doesn't allow you to build as much as it used to when they built that house. So when it does come time to tear it down, um, you might find that you can only turn it into a parking lot, for example. Or build, a, or build, just build a small shop or something there. So, long term, the uh, the income potential might be lower if you have to rebuild. Um, other factors that could affect is the walking distance to a nearby station. Um, if it's beyond ten or fifteen minutes, um, it becomes a lot less popular with tenants. 
And Thanks. lastly, if somebody died in the property, that takes the price down significantly as well. Japanese are very sensitive about that. So the, if you're going to turn it into a, something the tourists are going to stay in, they usually wouldn't mind. But if you're going to have a standard Japanese tenant and the next one after a death has to be informed... And even after oh. that, um, a neighbor or somebody might tell them that somebody died in that property, uh, you know, five or ten years ago. Um, and see. that also reduces the price significantly. Oh, I see. So for, I guess, for short-term tenants, it's not as much of a problem as it is for if you have a family who are living long-term there. No, that's correct. And again, if you're aiming for um, Tokyo or Osaka, I definitely go the uh, monthly mansion way. Otherwise, your cash flow will be very low. If you get okay, out so to the uh, suburbs or the surrounding satellite cities, then you can you can you know maybe get six seven percent even with um, standard long term lease. Uh, otherwise, you want monthly mansion. Monthly mansion, yeah, and I think that's that does sound like uh, probably the uh, best way and the easiest uh, way to do do it. Because I'm also looking for something that's more hands free, and I think it's more ideal uh, than. Uh, something like trying, uh, for example, the daily rental setup. It sounds like it would be a lot more uh, headache involved in trying to get that as opposed to monthly rental. Well, you need to hire so, staff. That's the thing because you don't live there close to the property yourself. Somebody has to satisfy the. Uh, I think it's depending on the location, but it's usually something like five hundred or eight hundred meter within the pro- uh, walking distance to the property. There has to be someone available twenty four hours. Okay. Um, and most of the most of the times they won't uh, really bother unless there's at least eight to nine different tenants. It's not that- going to be worth your while because to satisfy the minpaku, I mean, again, it's going to be worth your while if you're a mom and dad type operator, right? So if you're living in the property or close to the property and you're handling check-ins and check-outs yourself and you hire local cheap cleaners and, uh, you know, you find uh, cheap cleaning materials to put in the property for the tenants to use and stuff like that, it's it's worth your while at any size. But if you're a remote hands-off investor and you have to outsource all of these services, um, so if you're going to be doing it without a company set up, you can only do it for half the year, and then the other half you also have to um, somehow find a way to populate it. And then you have to hire a management company to do all of that for you. And if you're setting up a company and applying for a hotel license, which means that you're going to be able to operate it all throughout the year, you have to fully outsource all of these services. Um, so it's just not, you're not going to be making more than a monthly uh, mansion type setup uh, unless you've got at least yeah nine or 10 rooms. Yeah. Yeah, and it doesn't sound as much hands-free. It's not. It's not hands-free. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's definitely not, yeah. not hands-free. The monthly mansion is hands-free in the sense that, I mean, you'll get reports to say, you know, the, the management company will provide reports to us telling us uh, what the booking situation is like for the next few months and if it's been vacant, if there's been anything that we needed to uh, maintain or what. But otherwise, it is hands-free. With the mm-hmm. uh, Minpaku, with the short, short term, um, you constantly have to be on top of things, yes. And is, is it very flexible to switch between, let's say, uh, between uh, monthly mansion and long term? Or uh, is it, uh, I guess, uh, whenever if tenants move out, you can always choose to uh, be flexible on that, right? That's right. So to opt out of monthly mansion is relatively simple. I mean, the most that somebody will renting the unit out like that will be for a year. And usually it's going to be yeah. uh, periods of one or two or three months at most. 
Um, so that's that's fairly liquid. To go from long-term tenancy towards monthly mention, you have to have a tenant uh, move out. So the leases are typically two-term, uh, two-year terms, and rolling leases. So unless anybody notifies anything, it, they just get renewed automatically after two years. Legally, you're not supposed to um, kick out a tenant without uh, just cause. Practically, if you send them a letter to say that you're going to be using the property for something else and they need to move out, they're not going to take you to court over it, um, unless it's a foreign tenant. If it's a foreign tenant, they're uh, far more uh, court-friendly. <laughs> the Japanese don't like to go to court. like They avoid conflict at all costs, yeah. so you send them a letter, they'll Love move it. out. Um, if you've got a foreign tenant, a long-term foreign t- tenant in there, they might give you a bit of trouble if you ask them to move out at the end of the lease. I see. Okay. Yeah. Okay, that's good to know. So, yeah, I guess uh, so uh, for within the budget of, let's say, uh, as uh, we mentioned, about $200,000, uh, what would you recommend uh, in terms of for a monthly mansion? Is it better to, for a, in a cash flow, for a cash flow property, is it better to go towards an apartment or a uh, split house uh, uh, type of property? Um. I would say the apartment would be more manageable and probably yield a bit more on the cash flow front. Um, plus, it's more stable as far as expenses are concerned. You're not going to suddenly have to you know, get a new roof or what. Yeah. The only thing is, if, you're, if you are thinking long term and you want to, in the future, get creative uh, with the property and maybe you, know, you might be a full-time property investor, you might decide to visit Japan twice a year and maybe you will want to turn it into a minpaku. So you're not going to have that option with an apartment. That's the only thing. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, right. you stand to gain less in value because you've got a smaller land plot. You only get a fraction of the land that the building is standing on. Um, and you can't get creative with it. I mean, with a house, you can always, if it gets too expensive to maintain, you can always tear it down, turn it into a parking lot, build a warehouse and rent it out to a, you know, an internet, uh, an internet business that does deliveries within the city. There's always creative stuff to do with the land. An apartment is always going to be an apartment. You're not going to be, I mean, you can choose between long-term lease or monthly mansion, but that's it. I see. And is uh, within that budget, is it easy to find houses or uh, uh, I guess it depends on the area, right? It depends on the area and depends on the condition of the house and the year of the build. So the place that you marked, um, I can't remember. Did you remember the walking distance to a station, that example that you sent to me? Um, I can't remember which station it was. I think it was five or ten minutes. Uh, um but uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I think it was a three-floor house. Okay. Uh, yeah, but I'm not sure what the setup exactly. It, the pictures didn't really. There was no blueprint or pictures of the house. Didn't really uh, show if uh, if there was bathroom on each. If there was a bathroom on each floor, I'm not sure if that's even uh, standard, or okay. if there's a shared bathroom amongst the three floors and. Well, with, exactly. with a house, yeah. your options are as follows. So one is a long-term lease. That's probably the least um, least uh, pain in the bum to manage, but it's the lowest cash flow. The and other option is one tenant, right? One tenant, long-term, long-term lease. lease. Yes. Okay. Other option is to rent it out by the month, but also to a single tenant. So in that case, your tenant pool just gets a lot smaller because not many people want to rent an entire house unless they're coming here with a family for a few months and they're 
I mean, yeah. they do exist, but it, it you might be looking at longer vacancies between these types of tenants. Yeah. And the other option is to renovate and restructure the place so that you can rent out rooms by the month. So oh, that's, I see. What would the restructuring uh, involve? Would it be like try to uh, make a... Uh, just partitions, uh, doors. Um, if see. the toilet is uh, connected to uh, one room, you need to make sure that it's accessible from the, uh, from the public areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, same goes for the bathroom. You need to make sure that the uh, kitchen is structured to allow five or six or seven people to use it simultaneously. So you might need to enlarge the kitchen and, and uh, just uh, freshen it up a bit. Mm-hmm. So it, it wouldn't your capital outlay wouldn't end with those two hundred thousand bucks, right? You'll have to put in more money to make it yeah. uh, livable for five or six people that don't actually live together. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. But again, owning owning a house gives you more creative freedom uh, far down the track. If you look at a ten or twenty year plan, owning an apartment is not going to, I mean, your income is not going to improve with an apartment. And once the place becomes too old, you want to sell it before, you know, once the cash flow starts going down significantly, let's say 15 years down the track, you want to start considering reselling it because there's not much else that you can do with it. I see. And with the house, okay. 15, 20 years down the track, all options are still open. You can do a lot of things with that land plot. I see, yeah. And is the, let's say if you have a house and you split, if you do uh, do the renovations to split it between multiple tenants, uh, is sort of the uh, draw uh, from uh, the uh, uh, income you get from a tenant per month, is it usually the same as if they were to rent a, an apartment? Or I guess it would probably be less if they're sharing it between uh, multiple other, other tenants. Well, the attraction for tenants is... Um there's no limiting contract. I mean, they pay by the month, they can move out at any time. Whereas if they rent an entire apartment, they're obliged to uh, stay there for at least two years. Otherwise, they have to pay an early vacating fee, uh, which oh, is again, yep. one or two months of rent. And the move-in fees um, are, used, are typically a lot cheaper. When they rent in a long-term lease uh, on an apartment, they have to pay, um, in Tokyo, there's still this annoying custom called the uh, raking thank you fee. So a lot of the uh, owner's, uh, or the real estate agents will charge them one month and non-refundable, just like a contract signing lease, plus the contract signing uh, fee itself, which is another month, plus one or two months of uh, security deposit. So it works out to be our and more money for changing the key, um, the key and the lock, and um, more money for a cleaning deposit. So there are a lot of moving fees that are just not applicable to a monthly rental type of thing. So that's attractive yeah. to tenants. The other thing is um, some tenants have just moved um, into the country after a, a stint overseas or they're between uh, jobs or they're running their own business and their tax returns are pretty low. So they can't actually qualify for a standard apartment. Um, so the oh, best that they can do is rent a house in a sh- uh, rent a room in a share house or rent an apartment by the month. Um, so the, the typical monthly fee for renting a room in a share house versus, say, a studio unit is usually about the same. I see. Um, but okay. if they're renting an entire bigger apartment by the month, it's a lot more. So somebody might pay, let's say, on a 20, 30 square meter uh, apartment, somebody might pay um, in Tokyo maybe up to $2,000 a month. Other places, <clears throat> yeah. other places maybe six or 700 or $1,000 a month. Um, yeah. To rent a room or a small studio apartment long term will probably cost them 
usually less than a thousand dollars a month in Tokyo, maybe some places up to six, seven hundred dollars for those tiny little studios. Other cities can be as low as um, two hundred, three hundred, four hundred dollars a month. Um, so it's a big difference. So no, nobody wants to stay in a monthly uh, situation for long. Usually, the people who uh, rent it out are either tourists. Um, who are going somewhere for the winter or the summer. So these might be foreigners, might be uh, Japanese who are business owners and have a bit more flexibility, not many of those. It might be people relocated by a company for a project. So a company sends a Japanese staff member to another city for three, four, six months a year. And then they'll uh, rent a place by the month because they don't want to start furnishing the place and uh, getting appliances and stuff like that. Um, Hello? Yeah, lost, Hi, yeah. lost yeah. there. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think it uh, just uh, actually getting a call in the background. Yeah, sorry. You're right. Well, where did you uh, lose me? Uh, so I think uh, yeah, we were talking about the uh, the differences in uh, price rental pr- uh, monthly. Uh, rent oh yeah, the types of tenant. Did you hear yeah. the types of tenants yeah. that I was describing? Uh no, I I missed uh, the end the end of it a little bit. Okay, so when you're doing monthly mention, the general tenant profiles you're going to get are either businessmen that have been relocated by a company for a short project, so up to a year. Um, The company doesn't want to uh, commit to a long-term lease. They don't want to start buying furniture and appliances, so they rent a place by the month for that period of time. It might be tourists who are going to a particular city for a season, so somebody who's coming to uh, ski somewhere or coming to enjoy Tokyo for three months or going to enjoy the beach for a month or two. Um, or people that have just moved to the city and are still looking for a, a long-term place or are still still need to uh, show some income before they'll be able to uh, to um, to qualify for a long-term lease, that sort of thing. I see. Okay. Yeah. And again, they all pay in advance, so there's no deadbeats. Nobody can afford to, uh, to not pay the rent and move into a monthly mansion. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, I think that's actually uh, I, some of the things I've been considering. I think it makes uh, more sense for uh, to look at uh, a monthly mansion type of setup. Yep. So, uh, so yeah, so uh, we can look uh, at the, maybe I, I'll try to look at the more options uh, within that uh, within this criteria. My earlier. Uh, uh, my earlier searches or my when I was inquiring about the uh, properties was more towards looking at opportunities at the uh, uh, short-term rental at the uh, Minpaku setup. So I think given the the uh, new information, maybe uh, we can, I can, maybe I'll try us to look at also at uh, the apartments, what uh, maybe there might be uh, a lot of apartments that are probably uh, better profit, more profitable uh, in terms of the, cash flow I was going to uh, suggest maybe for your first investment maybe play it a bit more safe and stable and go for an apartment and then once you're more experienced yeah. with that you can look at a house as a second investment maybe yes yeah actually yeah that does sound like a, it's better in terms of to just to be on the safe side to get more familiar with having a, a property in Japan I think that does make sense 
Okay, that's probably it from us for today. We'll save you the end of that conversation, which was just uh, discussing administrative things like how to sign up um, for us to represent him here in Japan and um, forms and legalities and that sort of thing. Hope you've enjoyed that one. Um, I think it answered a lot of the questions that we've been getting on a regular basis and hopefully gives you an idea of how we consult uh, to clients and potential clients at every stage of the process. Um, again, these sort of conversations with us do not cost you anything. So do feel free to contact us, ask us anything you want, schedule a call to discuss uh, details or any particular strategy that you've got in mind. We are always happy to talk shop with anyone. I keep saying this, but it's true, as you've heard in this conversation. Hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Please do leave us your comments, your questions, anything that you'd like to say in the comment section of wherever you might have found us. And as usual, we would really, really appreciate it if you could leave us a rating or a review on the iTunes store, on Stitcher, wherever you might have found us. And last but not least, if you've got any questions of your own, but you don't have the time for a lengthy conversation like this one, send it to us in audio or video format and we'll feature you on the podcast and answer your question or questions um, over a lengthy period of time without you actually having to be there live for it. You can just listen in and tune in whenever you're ready to hear the answers. Hope to have you with us next time. And until then, from all of us here at NTI, we wish you, as always, happy investing. <laughs>